Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Commission podcast. This time we're going to be talking about the 1991 Coen Brothers film, Barton Fink, graciously commissioned by Anthony Basich. I hope I'm pronouncing your name. I actually looked it up and got a little, because uh, I was going to say Basich. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe if you're a Frenchman, that's the correct pronunciation, but I'm going to Basich. Uh, so this is an interesting film. And I feel like there's a lot of the, the, to say about it. It's one of the Coen Brothers films where it's a lo- it's very easy to take on multiple levels. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of funny stuff. Traditionally, my I like the Coen Brothers when they're just really serious. Okay. You know, when they're talking about No Country for Old Men, we've got Fargo. Not that there's no moments of levity in there, but you can easily pin that as a drama. Or like them when they're really funny, uh, like Raising Arizona. I think they're less successful for me because, you know, if you've listened to a lot of our podcasts, one of my big bugaboos is tonal shifts, tonal inconsistencies. And Barton Fink comes very close to getting in that valley with me because it starts off as a very broad comedy and then increasingly turns dark and then takes a supernatural twist at the end. Mm-hmm. And it left me really, especially the ending, I got to say, I really hated how the movie ended. You hated how it ended, huh? Yeah. And it's nothing about how ambiguous it was or that there's a lot of open questions. I just, I don't know. Um, That saying, I liked the film. It was very entertaining. I'm glad I saw it. And I have a lot to say about it. What did you think about the film? I thought it was one of the more interesting Cohen works that I've seen. I haven't seen all of their stuff. Sure. And I thought I had seen this, but I was actually thinking of another John Turturro playwright movie called <laughs> Cradle Rock, which was a very serious take on uh, Broadway and playwrights. And It's not a Billy Idol rock opera? No, it's really? not. Okay. Um, so I, I, I went into this movie expecting something very different, and I realized, oh, this is not the movie I'm thinking of, uh, you know, 10 minutes into the thing. Um I I enjoyed it a lot. It felt more serious than some of their other stuff. Like, you know, Big Lebowski is <laughs> basically my Another. favorite Coen Brothers movie of all right. time. One of my favorite movies, period, of all time. Right. Uh, that's not nearly as serious and doesn't have the the metaphor and all the kind of thematic stuff running through it that this does. And you kind of need to know a little bit about the history of this film to understand... Uh, to to understand the film fully, I feel. I thought now that you mentioned uh, Big Lebowski, there is a fairly fairly big reference to Barton Fink in the Big or a, a wink to Barton Fink in Big Lebowski, because Walter, who's played by John Goodman, uh, they're talking about the the nihilists. Yeah, and he's saying, you know, dude, say what you want about the tenets of national socialism, you got to admit that it's at least a a, a workable life. Ethos, a lot, it's, yeah. it's a, a ethos, right? Uh-huh. And then in this film, one of the interpretations of uh, John Goodman's character, who's Charlie Meadows, is that he's a metaphor for the rise of National Socialism uh-huh. and the ineffectual liberal elite response to that rise. Sure, sure. Which and I'm I, sure we'll talk about more going into it. Yeah, probably probably so. I don't know much about the history of that whole uh, era, but I know that Roger Ebert mentioned it in his review. Mm. Um, there are a couple of overt... References to Hitler for for one, sure. Um, 
yeah, we'll get there. But so I, I wasn't expecting this movie. Uh, once I watched it, I found it was one of my favorite Coen Brothers works. I mean, it's it's maybe on par with Fargo, in my opinion. Wow. Yeah, and I really like Fargo. It's uh, got a lot more going on than Fargo, but I don't know. It's, well, it's not nearly. Uh, it's not nearly on that level for me. I hmm. do like. Um, so, so just to start out, I did. I was really into it about what it had to say about creative types mm-hmm. because I kind of fancy myself as a creative type, and some of the questions that Barton was struggling with. You know, like, what is real success? What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to be successful in the eyes of the creator? What does it mean to be successful in the eyes of the audience? What does it mean to mm-hmm. sell out? Yeah, particularly in the eyes of Hollywood is one of the things that they address here. I mean, I, 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 I and, and this is like a real thing you hear mostly, I think, with rock stars, where they become famous for a particular song that they themselves cannot stand. Maybe they made it you know, as a lark or they saw it as a less serious thing or is it something they're fucking around with? And then suddenly like, uh, uh, is it Radiohead with creep? Like they refuse. Oh, I don't know. To play Maybe. that song anymore because they hate it so much. And it's so, so comparatively shallow and, and uninteresting to them. Yeah. But that's like, you know, pro- one of everybody's favorite songs of theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? Like we've got a guy, who created something that everyone's hailing as a masterpiece, and he says it's meh. Uh, you're talking about his play? Yeah. The the original one that we see the in New the York, opening? The New York, Everyman. Okay. Uh, I don't know that... I mean, does he see that as meh? That's what he sees. I mean, that's He what, sees it as his finest work to date, certainly, but I think it was his he? only work to date as well. I think that's the first one that he actually got critical success for, and he was just saying that it's, you know, it's, I'm getting, I'm reading these accolades, but they don't mean anything, and it's not, I, I feel like when he's having dinner with that, that couple, that he was just loathing himself because he knew that he was capable of better, that this was only scratching the surface of what he wanted to do for the everyman. Sure, sure. There's a lot mixed up in that. I I don't know. I I didn't really get that impression from him that he thought that he necessarily thought himself a fraud. I I feel like he thought himself better mm. than than the work he was being tasked with. This shitty wrestling movie, well, B movie. That yeah. Once you get there. So like those two, I, I don't know that those two ideas are are not in conflict with each other. What do you think? What is the artist problem with selling out? Because the pitch seems to make a lot of sense. You do something that you might think is beneath or it's a little bit too pop culture for you, whatever, for a set amount of time. You make a lot of money, and then you have you have fuck you money. You have creative freedom to do whatever the hell you want for the rest of your life. You've also tarnished your reputation. Have you if it's popular? I think you have. Uh, people are expecting a certain thing from you. Like, this might even be able be evident in the career of the Cohen brothers where people kind of, I guess, expect a certain thing from the Cohen brothers. And then when they go make a serious drama, it feels very weird. It doesn't feel very Cohen-y, right? I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to struggle to think of an example of an actor who, or let's, let's stick to acting and writing or even music in pop culture, someone mm. that makes something that has broad comedic or whatever appeal and then they take a dramatic turn, and as long as it, assuming that the dramatic turn is quality, or they do something more important, that it fails. Like Tom Hanks is a perfect example. Tom Hanks is a goofball 
that yeah. was in what Bosom Buddies. He was in what was that Bachelor? Sure, he's in Money Pit and Big and all these all that th- those super crazy popular, stuff, but not really you know deep. Movies. But then you know you don't think of him. I mean, he's still a very funny guy, mm-hmm. but he's got you know he's kind of this generation's Jimmy Stewart. You think of the Beatles who made like teenage pop music and then went on to make some of the greatest popular music of all time. You think mm-hmm. I, I just I just don't know that I buy that being popular is a handicap for then later doing good stuff because it's that has and I think that's one of the other questions in Barton Fink is he this this Fink character has a lot of baggage an almost loathing of the people that he's trying to uphold. Sure. Like if you're saying that pop culture is stupid and the audience is too stupid to appreciate stuff. And if you're, you're going to be sullied by being popular, that's a fairly hateful thing to think about your audience, right? That the, well, that's not his audience as he sees it, right? The, the audience he's now writing for this wrestling B movie is not his audience. He doesn't give a fuck about these people. But these, they're the every man. They're the exactly the type of people to go see a wrestling film. Sure, and I think that's the disconnect in Barton Fink's philosophy uh, throughout this movie is that he thinks he is the everyman when, in fact, he is not the everyman. He is masquerading as the everyman. Hmm. He's championing the everyman while being, you know, the guy who writes for the pictures now. Hmm. You know, and that's evident at especially like when you go look at the USO dance. Sure. That he's at. I mean, he claims like I am the creator. I create with my mind. Right. And he's saying that he's better than all these everymen. Right. He is much better than all these everymen. And that is the disconnect. Like when uh, Charlie is trying to say, hey, I got, I got all these stories like Barton Fink is is brick walled here. He's got no creative insight. He has no ideas. He's dried up. And here comes Charlie, a guy with an infinite amount of stories. And what does Charlie or what does Barton do? He shuts him down when he's about to tell those stories and says, this has to be great. This has to be incredible. I am a creator and I need to make something amazing. He doesn't want to hear the everyman story. Right. Like right right there into his hotel room walks a larger than life character that you could pretty much yeah. just start cop, you know, cobbing dialogue down. He's even got wrestling experience. Yeah. I mean, this is a man who, like, for two weeks, he's assigned to, to write this wrestling flick. And for two weeks, he sits in a hotel room staring at a typewriter. He's never seen a wrestling picture before. He doesn't know yeah. the basic wrestling terminology. Uh-huh. Like, it seems like job one would be go fucking watch some wrestlers. Yeah. Then maybe watch some wrestling film. Read up on it a little bit. I mm-hmm. but But there's also some commentary about the Hollywood establishment because you've got this... You know, again, larger than life guy. He's the studio executive. What is his name? Is Lip, Lipinski or Lip, Lipowitz? Lipnick, I think. Uh, he's sitting there behind his desk, and he is to Barton Fink what Barton Fink is to Charlie. Uh, he's brought this guy out to give it the Barton Fink touch. The Barton Fink touch is an intellectually stimulating deconstruction of the everyman's heroic existence. Sure. And he wants him to write a very base wrestling film. Mm-hmm. And the whole time he's talking about how important it is to be an artist and, you know, you got to respect the person's art and his, his artistic output. And then at the end, when Barton Fink does what he actually thinks, you know, is his greatest achievement, the guy shits all over and says, we just wanted a dumb wrestling picture. If I wanted to, I got 10 Barton Finks. It's, 
kind of schizophrenic his his attitude towards this definitely i mean what he views as successful like we were talking about earlier is very different from what barton fink views as successful hmm so is it possible that barton fink actually made a shitty script uh it, that is an interesting idea because I, I kind of I, I watched this a second time and I kind of built up an idea in my head of what I think might actually be going on here. Um, I think Barton Fink might actually be the lunatic, um, the lunatic killer that Metz Ooh. that Metz actually is, you know, portrayed as. Uh, who's, okay. who's Charlie? Um, that's his his apparent real name. Because uh, so I was looking at this at the beginning of the movie. Uh, Barton Fink has success. He writes a play that is very good. Everyone sure. loves it. Uh, he's standing there behind the scenes with this magazine rolled up in his hand, and he looks very intense and almost crazed mm-hmm. a little bit. Very, very intense. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, his best work comes out of those moments of intensity. And in this film later on, when he writes his second, what he considers his greatest work, uh, it's after he has killed, or after someone has killed uh, Audrey. His lover. Yep. Uh, it's after he has had kind of a psychotic break with that. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, and especially when you look at this, this package that he's given by Charlie. Uh, Charlie later on in the hallway when it's on fire says, that's not my package. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, not, that's not the stuff that belongs to me. Which, in my mind, says that might be the stuff that belongs to Barton. And if Barton killed... He's talking about his family, and he's trying to get in touch with his family later Mm -hmm. on after Charlie leaves and says, I visited them. Mm -hmm. He can't do it. There's no answer online. So if Charlie... If uh, Barton was to kill his family before he wrote that exceptional play uh, at the beginning... And then he comes to Hollywood, kills Audrey, and writes his next exceptional play. You could view him as a serial killer who is fueled by the killing of these people to write these great screenplays and, and plays. The one problem I have that is Barton is having a loud conversation with one of his uncles or aunts. Like when he's in the middle of his writing mania, he's on the phone and he's screaming. Like is he just screaming uh-huh. to no one? Are you suggesting that he... I mean, I feel like mm. that they make it pretty clear that he's talking to his family back in New York. He's talking to someone. I, yeah, maybe it's his family in New York. There's no indication of that. The only time that we actually get an idea of who he's trying to call is when they don't answer. Are you implying that parts of this movie take place in a dream world? Or you sure. In- I think you could even say that this entire movie takes place in Charlie's head. Oh, I hate that. Uh, or the, See, the, the hotel itself is his mind. I mean, the the this line, life of the mind, yeah. like, I'll show you what it's like to live, yeah. live life of the mind uh, at the end. That's the, this is what happens when you fuck a man in the ass <laughs> moment of this film. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, John Goodman, great at that. Uh, I, I feel like there's a lot more to it than just the straight up uh, writer goes to Hollywood has a writer's block and gets into some trouble. See, that's, I guess, another problem I have with the film is that if you're going to do that, I feel like you need to say, 
there needs to be a more clear indicator that this is actually taking place in his mind. Or if you're saying mm. part of is any of the part of, is any of the film real? Because if it's part of his film is real and part of its dream, part of it's a dream. Then I feel like there's got to be some kind of clear insert points between where you know here's real reality, here's the dream world. Well, there might actually be. I'm wondering if it's not when he's in the bathroom and passes out after he sees Audrey killed mm-hmm. or dead. Because that's way. when, like, honestly, nothing. It's kind of like Fargo, and it's it's funny because I wish I'd seen this movie before I seen Fargo because I feel like I'd been repping. The uh, it wasn't Lester. It was uh, uh, Jesus. Who was the Billy Bob Thornton character? Malvo. Malvo. I would have repping the Lorne is the devil thing a lot harder um, because he was doing a lot of these same kind of John Goodman manifestations. I I I talked about the way he was disrupting power fields and doing all this stuff. But yeah, yeah. the only point in this film where it just takes a a pure supernatural bend is when John when when Charlie comes back. With the investigators working fire over the yeah. fire bursting out in the hallway, mm-hmm. and all that stuff is going on. Um, so clearly, that's not real. Yeah, that is that is either allegory or it is uh, a dream, perhaps. But everything else sure. in the film is so grounded in in reality. Like, and I. I was honestly shocked when things started bursting out into flames. Uh, I was when the yeah, smoke yeah, was rolling out of the elevator. I thought, okay, well maybe something's happening, or the elevator's malfunction. Because I was looking uh, when I was looking through this a second time, I noticed like the the sometimes the equipment looked very ran down, and like the fan was in some scenes running in the elevator running slow. I was thinking maybe there's like electrical fire or something, mm-hmm. and you know. It's it's really easy to say, okay, well, it's hot and associate the heat with the Charlie character. But then when he's walking down the halls and literally things are just bursting into flames. Yeah. Um, one of the deconstructions in the movie that I saw on the internet said, noted that uh, the number six is repeated three times in the elevator. Yeah. Uh, like Barton says six and then the guy says floor six and then when he gets to the top, he says floor six. Clearly, there's there's a lot of hell motif stuff going on here, but I, I just don't know what to do with that. Yeah, that's kind of why I said you, can, you need to know the history of how this film got written and made. And for some reason, like there's because a... it's it's mixed up in Miller's Crossing when when ah shit, <laughs> which I haven't seen. I, haven't I wish either. I had. I feel I need that for the proper context. It... But when the Coen brothers were writing Miller's Crossing, they got stuck. They got to a point where they had sure. writer's block. They, had ri- yep. they couldn't figure out the ending to this movie, and they came up with this idea for Barton Fink. Right. Uh, which they then made later on. Again, for me as, like, you know, tonal shifts being my big bugaboo, I feel like I'm a lot – it's a lot easier for me to go along with the unstoppable because that's something Eric had in his – you know the Coen brothers' love of this unstoppable evil supernatural force character. Yeah, I have a I have a lot easier time rolling with them when they're like Lorne Malvo and they're a lot more firmly situated in the real world. Mm-hmm. You know, like at no time did the literal flames burst out of his mouth or do anything crazy like that, or you know, horns grow yeah. out of his head. Or if you're going to do stuff like that, I like it better in Raising Arizona, where you've got this evil biker guy who's like literally riding his bike up ladders and through windows and you know he's like this goblin thing uh, like evil dead style right yeah like <laughs> like it's when it's in a, a a comedy or a farce for some reason my suspension of disbelief is a lot more powerful in those type of fantastical situations 
Yeah, it's weird because I, I realized that when you take it at face value and this whole movie is basically about writer's block mm-hmm. um, and about the creative dilemma uh, as it is, then I kind of open up to a lot of different interpretations, right? If if I had none of that information and I wasn't sure what this film was about, maybe I would go a little more literal at mm-hmm. the beginning of this film and then say, okay, well, that hallway of fire is clearly not real and that must mean something super important. And I think it does, but it's in the context of this larger metaphor, uh-huh. you know? So so where do you draw the line? This whole film is a metaphor. Where Where do you say this is reality and this isn't? Well, like, I personally think of things like, can they really happen? Like, for example, there's one way to look at this as a film that's about sexual repression. Okay. And particularly because there's some homoerotic, explicitly homoerotic scenes. Yeah. Where, like, you know, uh, um, John Goodman's character, Charlie, is demonstrating to Barton wrestling techniques. Yeah. And he, like, gets on the floor on his hands and knees and is, like, <laughs> uh-huh. smiling, looking over his shoulder, like, come on, it's all right. Yeah, and yeah. The, and I even I read an uh, interview with the Coen brothers where they explicitly said they consider that a love scene mm-hmm. or a sex scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that can happen. And, and during these peaks where, like, Barton is complaining about the lovemaking going on in the, the other side of the building, the wall, and, and he's sexually fr- coming home and he's sexually frustrated by the fact that this uh, William Faulkner looking guy. And I think, because that's the other thing, the, the creative types that they mentioned are all based on real people. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, Wallace Beery was a real. F- film star and coincidentally he was featured prominently in this week's episode of boardwalk empire yeah um but when you see those scenes of sexual tension the walls are dripping with wallpaper paste which looks exactly (laughs) like spooge sure yeah and it's it's coming out of the ears of and and yeah uh, one of the characters and and uh, when when john goodman comes back from uh having a troubling experience with a housewife which, when we look back at Charlie, you know, what we know about Charlie from the end of the film, it's fairly clear that he probably killed that woman. Mm-hmm. He's got an ear infection. He's got to stop up the pus. And then when he kills those two, two guys at the end, his ear literally ejaculates that same spooge-looking pace that's coming out of the walls. Like, oh, I finally got a release. Here, here's something else that... But how do you okay. do you, how do you have how do you how do you say this film is about the rise of national socialism? <laughs> it's about homoerotic uh, personality uh-huh. repression. It's about, it's about writer's, writer's block. block, and it's about a critique for the Hollywood establishment. And oh oh, by the way, mm-hmm. you go and read the Coen Brothers, and they're like, "Hey, we don't intend any symbolism, yeah, any overt is, symbolism. Necessarily, we there. just kind of spitball and brainstorm, and it's in a stew, and we." Like, are they fucking the biggest liars? No, did... I think that's what they actually do. I think really. So, so I, I've, I was watching some Romero interviews, uh-huh. George Romero, um, about his early zombie movies, Night, Day, Dawn, uh, Night, Dawn, Day of the Living Dead. And he basically said the same thing. Like, a lot of the stuff that people are reading into this, we don't intend necessarily. I think it's a lot more clearly laid out in the Coen Brothers films. Like, I think they do intend a lot of things, but I'm not certain that they know how they all mesh together, Right. You've yeah. got all these concepts floating around in this movie, but do they actually come together to make a point at the end? I don't know that that's true. I think they make a lot of points. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that a lot with authors where they're like, oh, we don't intend this. But I know for a fact there's some authors that do. Like you read Red Badge Courage, yeah. and when a guy's, you know, uh, 
dies in a self-sacrificing manner with a wound in his side and the sun setting in the sky like a uh, wafer. With the you're, crown of thorns. You're talking about <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. You're making a clear literary reference to, you know, Western yeah. uh, Judeo-Christian mythos. Like, you, you you can't tell me you don't intend that. Sure. And but maybe the, the deeper intention is just the sacrifice of it all, right? Like, maybe they, they made a point of that, that guy looking like Jesus because he's going to make this heroic sacrifice later on. Right, but that's exactly what... You can't then say, oh, well, you know, that was just... I just put a random string... I'm just telling a story, and a yeah, random string yeah. of characters came, and out popped the Christ figure. You just... Sure, and, you so, know, the but, thing they said about the love scene, the, yeah, the sex scene, right. shows their intention to right. a degree. So they... Yeah, and, and I feel like that it might not be that they're just lying. It could be that they just don't want to impose... And I kind of respect that when a creator says, I don't... I don't want like like I, I think it's annoying when when people don't provide the lyrics for the albums <laughs> and their lyrics are kind of ambiguous. Especially yeah, if they have a mush mouth. But they're yeah. like you know, well, I don't want to impose my understanding on the listener. I want the listener. I want the experience to be organic. I, I kind of respect that, and I think maybe that's what the Coen Brothers are doing because no one can sit and tell me that they're not meaning for at least two or three of these layers to actually be something. Sure. Why else do you mention, like, why else do you make the head of the Capitol Films or whatever be called up in the draft? Why do you have John Goodman say Heil Hitler before he blows somebody away? Right. That stuff is clearly in there. Right. It's just, does it all necessarily come together? Yeah, so it's like, I guess this would be a good time about, um, you know, the fact that this is a a symbolism for the rise of national socialism in Germany and the liberal establishment's inability to deal with it, that you can see that, you know, Barton doesn't even want to engage. Like, uh, uh, Charlie is trying to tell him, like, if he would sit and listen to these stories, he would have found out that this guy's a killer and could have maybe done something, could have gone to the police, could have, but he's just completely willfully ignorant, doesn't want to hear it, cuts him off, ignores the problem, uh, when when situations get bad, and again, instead of confronting the situation, he buddies up with the the Charlie character. Uh, and then by the end of the movie, when this is a clearly a failed plan and his script is a failure, you see the studio exec get called up to the draft. He's in his military. He's he's you know they're now going to have to. That this war is intruding on the life. It does seem, and like you said, Charlie says Heil Hitler at the end out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, that seems like it's a pretty pointed critique at that. It seems like it, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of things. There's also some Bible stuff that never pans off, like the multiple talks about Nebuchadnezzar and looking at the Bible and and where that all goes down in Daniel, and yeah. then it kind of morphs into his the beginning of his failed script. I don't. Yeah, it's weird. Like, he, he looks at this Bible, and he sees his text at the beginning of this Bible. Right. Uh, and then he writes what he considers his greatest work. I I feel like he thinks he's writing an, a Bible-like equivalent in, in those pages that he turns in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I don't know if that's even supposed to be in there. Um, What else do we want to talk? I've got... A, um... One of the things I appreciate about Anthony is that he actually sent in some pretty uh, good feedback as well for us to consider. But I feel like that we probably haven't talked about a lot of the stuff. The other thing I thought was interesting 
is that Barton Fink is railing in the beginning about Hollywood and how they're all a bunch of sellouts and no one makes important film and no one makes anything of quality. Mm. He's actually bitching about Hollywood in the height of its golden era. Like 1941, which is this film takes place, is the year to Citizen Kane comes out. Yeah, yeah. One of the greatest films of all time, one of the most influential films, one of the things that really changed the way film was being made. And this is the environment Barton Fink's is shitting all over. Yeah, do we know if it's before or after this film takes place? I have no idea. I just know it came out in 1941. Okay. Because I was going to say, if it's before Citizen Kane comes out, you know, there could have been stagnation before Citizen Kane, and that contributed to why it was so revolutionary, hmm. because people were just shitting out B-wrestling movies left and right. Yeah. And no. Citizen Kane comes along and is actually a good, a well-made film. But and that's that the thing, like, away. it's not like the theater has always been highbrow stuff either. No, I mean, you've got the burlesque not. shows, and you've got shit like Oklahoma and Showboat and dumbass Spider-Man. stuff like that. Spider- <laughs> yeah, sure. The Lion King. I mean, uh-huh. stuff that has artistic merit somewhere for something, but there's a lot of lowest common denominator stuff as well. Yeah. And, and, like, now, it's like, even in the golden age of what we call television, uh, there's a lot of shit being produced. Oh, yeah. Much more shit than great stuff, and I just feel mm-hmm. like that that's another indication that maybe Barton Fink is not the genius we think he is, especially at the yeah. end when the studio exec is saying, I've got 10 of you on contract. Like, this yeah. guy literally, anyone that gets press from anywhere, he makes an offer and tries to snare him in his net and brings him out here. It's a factory. Yeah. Maybe Barton wasn't that special. It's not like... We've been searching for years for this Barton. I mean, you know what I'm saying? No, it all feels very disingenuous from that guy from the start. When Barton Fink first walks in his office, he says, let me get this guy a hug. Let me, like, this guy is the guy. He's sure. great. And you don't really buy it from him, right? He's he's a blowhard. He's telling this guy what he wants him to hear. Hmm. What, what did, is there anything, what does Charlie want out of life he says at the end that look i just try to help out people i wish someone to do the same for me Mm. would was he hoping that like barton would kill him like is he wanting did he want to release out of his tortured existence was he wanting was he wanting to literally have a love affair with barton did he just wanted someone to listen I to him? I don't know. Like, I definitely don't have all the answers on this film. <laughs> no <laughs> one does. watched it twice, and no one does. That's the thing. Like, so I, I had to opinions. read six different deconstructions analysis, and no one made the same point. They're all different, yeah. Uh, and they, they take the same points and spin them differently. So it's like, uh, it's very open to interpretation. I, th- I think Charlie, Charlie can be seen as the devil himself, and if you look at him as the devil, the devil might very well be sad and lonely in hell, you know? <laughs> I could definitely see that being true. Um, Charlie could also just be a manifestation of Barton Fink's um, mania, I guess. Hmm. Uh, Like I said, with the serial killer idea, I don't know that Charlie and Barton are not the same person, that this is all uh, a part. Because Barton is very worried when he says it's getting hot, Charlie's back. Right. Feels like things are steaming up inside of his own head. Mm-hmm. And if you look, here's something that's interesting that I'm I don't know that I've seen commented on anywhere is if you look at Barton's desk um after he meets Charlie and he finds out about these ear infections um and he's got the cotton in his ears uh on his desk next to his typewriter there's an ashtray 
matches on the top, and there are used bloody uh, cotton balls in that ashtray. Oh, I didn't know there because I noticed he was using that to block his hearing to, yeah. to drown out all the things going around. So, yeah, and then he does that later, and then he very specifically takes the script that he wrote uh-huh. and puts these two cotton balls on top of it. Uh-huh. That takes me back to the serial killer idea where he is Charlie, he has done the killings, uh, and the cotton balls symbolize that. That, that he is actually this person and that the heat building up in his head when Charlie comes back is a manifestation of that other side of his personality. Hmm. I Here, don't know. Here's my contribution <laughs> to the Barton Fink analysis. That I've not read anywhere else. Okay, cool. Bring it. Very last scene in the movie when he's walking along the beach is almost a shot for shot remake of the last scene of planet of the apes where Charleston Hessen <laughs> rides his horse along the beach in a forbidden zone and he sees a statue of Liberty in the surf. If you take that shot and you lay it over. I, it might even be the same goddamn beach, might just be. with a different. Because the cliff is different, but I'm not sure if the Cohen brothers just framed it differently. Uh-huh. But it, I feel like it's got to be intentional. Mm-hmm. Now, then that scene of Planet of the Apes. That's where the apes have been the antagonists the whole movie, and they're the ones that you know that that Charleston Heston has to find the truth about what's going on, and he's got to. You know, figure out how to liberate the humans and do all this stuff. And that is the point in the movie where he's brought down low and he realizes the enemy is within. That mm. we did this to ourselves. Yeah. Damn it. You know, you we you you blew it up. You damn you you damn idiots. Um why the illusion here in Barton Fink? Is are we supposed to take away from this that this is Barton now realizing that he has fucked himself over, that he's bought into his own bullshit? That I could buy that, yeah. That that he is the maniac. He is the maniac that blew his own life up. I, I could definitely buy that. I mean, he is because everyone, everything that led him to here. I mean, I I don't know that I buy that he's been an axe murderer the whole time. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I I'm not saying I don't. I'm uh, just okay. saying that that's yeah. <laughs> that's a new thought to me. Uh huh. But if if not, and then like if if we take it to film at face value, which is probably dangerous, and his <laughs> first foray into doing something fucking crazy was being involved in uh, the murder of uh, the William Faulkner types uh, mistress. Mm-hmm. Every step that he took to get to that point is his own damn fault. He yeah. chose to sell out and go to Hollywood, even though he knew it was the wrong the, the thing the wrong thing to do. He's sitting there blathering about the everyman when he couldn't, uh, you know, he couldn't be bothered to listen to real everyman like Chet or the ele- elevator attendant or Charlie. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of rejecting every one of those and choosing to pursue his his view of a, a superior author. Okay. Yeah. With his William Faulkner type, then he finds out he's a drunk, and he recoils from that. He's chasing after all these sources of inspiration when the, uh, the real source, and you know, he did something he knew was wrong with the woman. He then covered it up. I just wonder if that was supposed to be like his, you know, you maniac moment. Yeah, no, I I could definitely see it being that. I think my my first reaction coming off this film was Charlie was so far up his own ass he couldn't see what was going on around him. Sure. Uh, and that, I think that's reflected by the isolation of the hotel, like all these people apparently around him that mm-hmm. he's ignoring and never running into with all the shoes in the hallway indicate that. Sure. Uh, and, and so like the idea that he m- may or may not be a great writer at the beginning, he goes out to Hollywood, 
he he believes that the only thing I can trust in Hollywood is myself, and so now he's stuck in his own head, the life of the mind. Uh-huh. And he gets so far down that rabbit hole that yeah, he can't he can't see the forest for the trees at that point. And then it it all becomes very clear how he feels in the USO show when he basically says that as a creative, he is more important than everyone, the common man, the people that he's looking to for inspiration. Right. Uh, so I, I think it would be fitting if he finally understood that at the very end of the movie, like you're saying. Okay, so what I think we should do now is get to Anthony's feedback. We might actually, this might be the rare podcast where the feedback is the middle and okay. not the end because I could see some of this stuff as jumping off points. Yeah. Uh, but I don't want to get too far along with this before we consider these points. Uh Anthony says, I want to throw a couple ideas at you before we have a chance to do this podcast. And by the way, if you are contemplating commissioning a podcast, we really like it when you do this. When you, mm-hmm. uh, um, I mean, we're more than happy to just go solo or duo or whatever. <laughs> but if you actually have some thoughts on yourself that you want to hear us talk about um, in a back and forth manner, please, you know, don't hesitate to send us uh, your pre feedback, your pre back. So obviously we can think of Meadows as a metaphor for the supernatural force. This is, of course, John Goodman, Charlie Meadows' character. Uh, but what about literally? He makes a comment to Barton about how he hears the couple in the neighboring room to Barton having sex. He also remarks about how he hears them through the pipes. Barton is pretty flabbergasted by this. We're then shown the inside of the pipes while Barton and Audrey are having sex. Are they suggesting that Meadows is traveling through the pipes here to witness this? I personally have trouble buying this on a literal level, but metaphorically I can see this as Meadows hovering over Barton now as the common man's inspiration. Earlier in the film, Barton was totally deaf to Meadows' life experiences. One thing I noticed, actually I did notice, I, I watched the movie and then started reading some analysis. One person mentioned that at the end of the pipe sequence, which when we were watching, I'm like, what the fuck? What are we supposed to be taking away from this pipe sequence? Yeah, You go, they're having sex. They go to the bathroom, they go into the sink, they go down the drain, and then down into the sewers. And when you get to the end where kind of all these pipes are intersecting, intersecting, if you listen to it carefully, you can hear Charlie Goodman roaring in rage. Yeah. I feel like, and he already said that he can hear this stuff through the pipes, so I feel like this is yet another betrayal uh, that, that, that Barton has fostered on him. The first one was... Uh, Goodman is in there in a room. Maybe he's laughing. Maybe he's crying. I do think it's purposely ambiguous, just like when Barton hears the people making love. Mm -hmm. If you listen to that, it's not cut and dry exactly what's going on in there. The woman could be in ecstasy. She could be sobbing. The man could be grunting in pleasure. They could be having pain. There could be some weird shit going on. We don't know. (laughs) But – yeah. The first time is when, you know, Barton again to every man, this guy, whatever he's doing in the next room, it's not offensively loud. It's yeah. a person just living. And I hear that's left purposely vague in the script as well. Huh. So he calls down to Steve Buscemi's character, Chet, and complains about it. Chet mm. calls the room and says, hey, the next room said you're making noise pipe down. Charlie comes over. And I thought originally he was going to beat the shit out of the guy. Sure, yeah. Turns out it's his buddy-buddy thing. But I do feel like that Charlie felt pissed that, you know, Barton had this, like, fake concern for him. Like, he just wanted him to go away. But now that it looks like he's going to get beat up, he's got this fake concern. But I'm getting to the point where the second betrayal was when they were commiserating over the fact that none of them are successful with the ladies. And... Uh, Charlie really seemed to warm up to Barton, and now Barton's having sex next door. That's when Charlie 
swung into action. And I don't – that's where I have a problem with saying that Charlie is a manifestation of Barton Fink's personality. Because why go into okay. the pipes? Why have the roaring? I mean, I guess that could all just be symbolism. It could, yeah. That's the thing. Do you buy Barton, who was not drunk at the time, could have a woman brutally murdered beside him and not be awoken? <laughs> no, that's why I wonder about the passing out thing. Because we know he has passed out, or he does pass out after that. Uh, like, I, I'm wondering... They don't show us what happened there. So it's it's left up to our imagination, and that's got to be on purpose, right? Speaking of on purpose, when he got, he he wakes up and he screams, then he goes to the bathroom and he kind of sinks to the floor and he makes these kind of wheezing, like these death rattle, like <gasps> noises, which were very similar to the ones coming next door from the love make the the couple making love. Huh. Okay. Why? What? What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> I don't know. I wish I knew, man. Did Charlie go next door and kill them because he heard him through the pipes? Uh. To me, the pipe sequence is the most logical jumping-off point to say Barton Fink had a psychotic break and the rest of the movie is a fever dream. Sure, sure. If there's anywhere you're going to call it that way, that's the cleanest. That's, that's the cleanest break from reality because everything gets yeah. surreal. That's when he has his breakthrough and starts writing yeah. stuff. That's when he wakes up to the corpse. That's when the cops uh, come through. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, Anthony continues along these lines. He says, uh, but then... There's a scene where he's wrestling with him. There are a few different things you can take from that. Is he wrestling with the devil or his own inner demons? Is he wrestling with himself or his own creative struggles, which would make Meadows as a Tyler Durden type of character, making a Fight Club reference? Yeah, yeah. Is that even plausible here? Of course, the two cops do know about this madman month, so he has to be a real person, right? Unless no. the pipes are the jumping off point in the dream world in which the cops are just another part of the delusion. Or you can take it even farther and say that the hotel itself is is the life of the mind is is a not necessary not not a dream but just a manifestation of what is going on in charlie's head as he's struggling with writer's block <laughs> like that's the thing i don't know that there are answers within this movie i think they're purposely vague when they talk about it because it's a purposely vague movie sure uh, Anthony has another point. Did you pick up the fact that the last line of Barton Fink's Broadway play is the exact same line from his new wrestling screenplay? Yeah, yeah. I didn't pick this up at the first time I saw it, but I think it's a very important point when reading into the film. What does this say about Barton Artist? This tells me that he really is a one-trick pony. It would certainly warrant the studio exec's fierce criticism of his work. It really changes what I thought of Barton Fink as a writer after all the pomposity and judgments he made of W.P. Mayhews, which is the William Faulkner character, Mm -hmm. and of his proclamations to Charlie and the World War II GIs about his life of the mind. What it ultimately does is cement his status as the supposedly most beloved object, the common man. Okay. Yeah. I kind of agree with that. I don't feel like Barton is as good. Barton is... I feel like there's a lot of similarities to Barton and Ed Wood. Okay, just but, uh, just so far up their own ass that, and 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 not like Ed Wood, the real character. I'm talking Ed Wood, the character from the Tim Burton movie, where okay. he yeah, yeah. actually th- as what, played by Johnny Depp, as played by Johnny <laughs> Depp, which I think is a great film. And yeah. the gap between what he thought he was doing and what he actually is doing, yeah, couldn't be bigger. And if you think of Barton Fink as this is ed wood without us as the audience knowing ed wood's real life reputation as one of the worst directors of all time it kind of tracks through pretty clean 
He's yeah. this guy with this sure. weird cast of characters. You know, he's completely insulated from any criticism. Anytime a criticism does land on him, he's got someone to prop him up and keep shoving him forward. I do think that maybe Barton Fink is not a once in a generation talent or anything like it. Yeah, you could definitely be right about that. Um, there, most of this film is that struggle uh, about, you know, what makes him successful, what makes him great. Uh, it's definitely possible that he's not great. I think there are a lot of other similarities as well between the ending and the beginning of this film where um, the beginning of this film in the play that he's, uh, that he's written and is, they're performing, at the end you see a guy in a hat and a coat with a suitcase and kind of front and center mm -hmm. there. Looks just like how John Goodman looks at the end of this running down that hallway mm -hmm. when he steps off that elevator and they tell him to put down the what what do they call it uh i forget the actual term they use it's the not, policy bag yeah, or a policy, policy case, case. <laughs> weird term for that but, but yeah. I, maybe that was a thing that's what you call the kind of hinge i don't know i guess but down the guess. policy case by the way those two detective characters were fantastic everybody in this film is, that's true. Is great but i mean that's like one of the one of the funny moments the yeah, way yeah. that they're completing each other's sentences another thing yeah. that i yeah. couldn't get enough of and was also reminded me of the ed wood mm -hmm. was when he was watching the dailies of the wrestler saying yeah. the i will destroy him <laughs> and just like uh -huh. just watching that 10 times over and over that was that movie's if you've seen ed wood there's this moment where Bella Lugosi just goes off on this, pulls the string, pull, as, and I just, I don't know, I couldn't stop laughing. Uh, it's hilarious, it's hilarious. But uh, then multiple people get killed, and John Goodman burst out as the devil from hell, and I'm like, the fuck? Yeah. So, that's that's the difference in Ed Wood and that, I suppose. Um, he also says, this brings him to his main point, Barton's relationship with the common man. The mm. film makes no secret in how Barton longs to create this theater for the common man while he remains absolutely tone deaf and on top of that extremely pretentious when confronting actual common men. After all the abuse he received from both Meadows and Lipnick, I always saw the last scene on the beach as Barton's final descent into his personal hell leading to the realization that he really is the very common man he's been working so hard to exalt in his work. This happens when he meets the girl on the beach and watches her view the ocean just as she, he was watching her in the painting from his hotel room. No longer is there a separation between the idea of the common man and the experience. Barton is now doing what so many writers before have done. He's experiencing the subject matter he longs to portray in his work. Hmm. Uh, I think this works really well with my Planet of the Apes metaphor of him yeah. waking up that he has actually you know, become that which he's trying to champion but also despise. Um, what what do you make of the painting? God, that's one of the biggest questions I still have after watching this twice. And that's one of the ones that makes me really think a lot of the movie is a dream because that's shit that yeah, happens yeah. in dreams. Sure, sure. So uh, what I, do you make of it? I don't know. It's all mixed up in the killing and the head, too. It's like at the end of the film, all he has is a briefcase <laughs> I think yeah. Uh, this box, which presumably has a head in it, although he says he doesn't know what's in it. Uh, and that's it. That's all he's got, right? That's everything that Barton Fink is at that point. Yeah, I, I'm convinced that box, if anything is tied to the real world, contains Aubrey's, uh, Audrey's head. Yeah, it's got to. Like, as soon as that box came in, I'm like, that's got a human head in it. Mm -hmm. This is a totally... This is this 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 movie's gone full seven on us. This has got 
Gwyneth Paltrow's fucking skull in there. Uh-huh. It's going to be Audrey. I we never actually saw that, but I'm ninety nine point nine percent morally certain that that is contains <laughs> Audrey's head. Sure, I th- I think it just gets more interesting from there. Uh, and I, I, there's so many things that you can contextualize within my serial killer idea uh, with him passing out in the bathroom as John Goodman is carrying the body out. He doesn't remember how that body got out. He doesn't know what's in the the thing. You know, if that's a break in his personality. Sure. John Goodman is another manifestation of Charlie himself. He, he, Barton Fink might not know what's in that, but Charlie as a portion of Barton Fink's psyche might. I don't know. I don't know, man. That, that's a big question. Cause he's looking at this painting throughout the entire movie. What is he? So when he asks, says you're beautiful, are you in pictures? And she says, don't be silly. And then she strikes the pose. That's. Yeah something is he getting the idea <laughs> for his next film like i don't know that it neatly i don't know if i agree with anthony that it neatly lines up with this his realization he's because that's not an every man's life experience not ever i mean that's a that's a very movie experience to be walking on the beach uh-huh. in your your suit and to plop down on the bit of sand and then a beautiful woman comes out of the horizon and strikes up a conversation with this nebbish looking Jewy guy mm-hmm. that's got like a kid and play Jufro going on. <laughs> yeah. I that that doesn't happen in real life. And then he says, yeah. like, almost it's is this the Cohen brothers nod to us that this is a dream? Because if this if mm. if she's not in the pictures, if this literally isn't a movie script. And we know it can't be real life for all the reasons I just said. Then is that like is is that the spinning wedding ring? Is 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 that the <laughs> is spinning that top? Totem? Rather, that's I, I mixed my totems up. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, you're stuck in. The, I just incepted myself. Stuck in limbo forever. <laughs> uh, Someone kicked me be. out of this thing. Definitely could be. I, I think it's also interesting to maybe look at it from her perspective. If you say Barton Fink is now realizing who the common man is like Mm. i don't know that in california the experience of that woman is on a very uncommon thing to just like she says i'm not anyone special i'm not in the pictures don't be silly i'm just a common person and i'm walking down the beach and i'm looking out at the ocean and Mm. and looking at it from her perspective she may be the common person that he has been trying to uh capture in his writing yeah. And maybe he's finally realizing that? I I don't know. I don't know. There's so much there to go on, but not enough to make it conclusive. Uh, he's got two more points. He said, uh, Aaron, I want to thank you for knocking this to my head, but I never picked up on the Shining references until you mentioned oh, it on yeah. the Fargo podcast. I thought the Fargo episode made a Barton Fink reference, but you said it was a Shining reference. It turns out there's a lot of the Shining in Barton Fink, mm-hmm. a writer struggling with writer's block in a spooky hotel, having to possibly deal with dominant supernatural forces. And speaking of film references, the last scene on the beach is very reminiscent of Fellini. He used the beach as a setting for the last scene to re- several of his classic films, usually as a cathartic moment for his protagonists, just like Barton. Is that last hmm. moment, moment a catharsis for him? Uh, potentially. Or is it like, I don't know. To me, it felt more negative, like less a catharsis or more like a death knell or, uh, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know exactly the weird. term. I'm, I need a German word to, to express the, the <laughs> yeah. emotion I'm, I'm feeling. Definitely. Uh, it, it could go either way. Like a realization 
can be a cathartic experience or it's an epiphany for sure he's having right, right like a like a, a horrific like epiphany. oh my god i've just realized that i am a madman or a horrific oh my god i've discovered the secret of the common man like sure. it can go either way sure sure uh but no i definitely you know those long quarters of hallway i think when we were watching them, i'm like are we gonna is, is this is this where yeah. the wave of blood starts <laughs> crashing down uh-huh. Um, he said, uh, fi- he said, finally, I just realized this upon recent viewing the film, but I think Barton's scream after finding Audrey's dead body and beside him was a reference to the Godfather's horsehead scene. What do you think? I, yeah, it it's, be. it's plausible. Sure. If you think like Planet of the Apes is an influence and like, you know, a lot of films have influenced their work, I'm sure. And there was that kind of like, you know, this guy's waking up, he thinks one thing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he he makes one realization, and, and the Godfather's, oh, my bed is sticky, and he kind of moves the yeah. sheets around. Where Barton's the opposite. You know, it's it it does. It's not shot for shot, but it's kind of beat for beat. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the Cohen brothers are not above using those influences. <laughs> obviously, as we talked about in the rest of the podcast. Sure. Uh, what else are we? I also think it's interesting because one of the things we were talking about as we were watching this. Because you made a comment, I think, about how futile it is. Like, you know, why is he trying to make this highfalutin wrestler movie? And I said, you know, I would think that it would be impossible to make a highfalutin wrestler movie, except for Darren Aronofsky made one yeah, the with Mickey Rourke that's fucking fantastic. Like, that sure. is, if Barton Fink made a great <laughs> wrestling film, that's probably what it was. And then it got buried by the studio establishment and destroyed in a war, and then Darren found it yeah. years later and made it. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. And if you haven't seen the wrestler, if you think if you think the central conceit of this movie is impossible, watch it. <laughs> uh, what else? Anything else we need, want to talk about? No, I definitely want to see this movie again. Got to see Miller's Crossing too. You got to see that because I yeah. think that might be now the last of the Coen Brothers movies I haven't seen. Because I've seen you haven't Maybe. seen Raising Arizona, right? No, I've seen Raising Arizona okay. with Nick Cage. Yeah, uh, there there's a movie before Raising Arizona that they made that I don't know the name of. Right, I'm looking uh, up their um, yeah their filmography right now. Check those out because holy shit, it's got a main article in in uh, there's two movies they made uh, Blood Simple and Crime Wave before raising arizona okay. then they did miller's Ca- uh, crossing barton fink the hudsucker proxy have you i've seen that have you seen that um i want to say no it's the one about the guy who invents the hula hoop basically yeah i don't think i've seen that all right fargo big lebowski the naked man i have not seen that oh brother where art thou uh the man who wasn't there intolerable cruelty i have not seen that either hmm. lady killer is a very bizarre movie <laughs> tom hanks uh, Paris J. Tame, I think is how it's pronounced. I've not seen that. Hmm, uh, there's a whole bunch of actually. This these might be some short films that uh, looks like it's it's uh, because they're referred to as segments of it. Um, no Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, Serious Man. I have not seen that either. Uh, True Grit, Inside hmm. Luton Davis, and then the stuff that hasn't actually come out yet. So yeah, yeah. I think I've only got like two more before I've uh, Pokemoned it up and collected them all. I have to <laughs> fix that before next uh, Fargo podcast starts up. Yeah, Miller's Crossing is the one I definitely want to see. Yeah. After seeing all these. Yeah, we should have got a, a twofer on this one. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a definitely a direction to go. Well, Anthony, 
again, thank you very much for uh, commissioning this podcast. Another, I, I just, I keep coming back to something I've said in the last few threads is that I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but the bald move family has good taste. Yep. These are movies. I, if, if, if I had gotten around to seeing them, it would have been a long time from now. And I'm glad that I had the reason to actually sit down and watch this movie and, and actually think about it too, because I think if I had seen this movie just as a civilian, mm-hmm. I probably would have started playing with my cell phone in the second half of the movie where it started to kind of take it in a direction which I wasn't ready for it to go. And I certainly wouldn't <laughs> okay. have thought as much about it and done as much research and seen all the depths to it. So yeah. thank you for that. If you'd like to find out how you can commission your own custom podcast, the only place to do it right now is on subbable.com slash move. Uh, go there, check out the reward level. It's it's uh, it's the brass ring of reward levels. Um, but uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope we did the, your favorite movie, one of your favorite movies, Justice, Anthony, uh, Basich. Basich. And uh, until next time, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya. <laughs>